happy Saturday. It's November 19th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail men and women out on the ground trying to figure out the meaning of life. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We've got a humdinger of a show today. Ashley, this week is airmail's first ever special issue. It's an entire issue dedicated to downtown New York and the spirit of that dynamic place as well as the state of mind that it is. And to talk about it, we have our co-editor-in-chief, Graydon Carter, who will be joining us. In addition, we've got James Walcott, who's going to swing by to give us a guided tour of CBGBs and downtown's other lost nightlife haunts. And speaking of music, Chris Black will then join to share his story of Electric Lady, the famous recording studio on 8th Street in the village. And then Stephanie Dandler, author of Sweet Bitter, will take us to the dive spot that was a hangout for off-duty restaurant workers in the early 2000s, and also where a young singer named Lady Gaga was just getting her start. So it's going to be a fun show filled with voices. But Ashley, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm really well, Michael. I love this issue. I have immersed myself in it. Michael, this issue is the cure for... Whatever ails you, whether you're missing New York, you love New York, you're curious about New York, we have it all in there. And I have to say, I got a little nostalgic reading this for the good old days of yesteryear. Now, you've lived in Lower Manhattan for how long? Mm, Longer than you've been alive. That is just simply not true. How has it changed over the course of the centuries, really, that you've been living there? I think the big change has been like the change that happened to most of New York around the turn of the last century, which was when big, big money started to come into New York and everyone seemed to have extra zeros. And I think especially you saw it and you still see it happening here in the village where those brownstones that used to be sort of had been cut up after the war to make multifamily units, they all started getting bought up by wealthy people who lived on the Upper East Side and then they wanted to have brownstones now on the, and so they were being restored to the homes they once were. But you see a lot of money having come into the neighborhood and reshaped it. And now, I mean, here's my perfect example. It used to be you had one brownstone. Now the big trend is as represented by on 11th Street, Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. They used to have a brownstone on Charles Street. What do they have now? They bought two brownstones on West 11th Street and they combine those. So now you can, it's not enough to have one brownstone. You have to have a double wide, double wide brownstone. And as another friend of mine who's an architect said, he got a call from someone who was combining two brownstones and he said, he asked the client, well, what do you want to do? They said, well, I know in one of them, it's time for me to have a ballroom. So there you go. It's time for me to have a ballroom. It's like, we moved to places like New York, so we don't have to have ballrooms. I mean, come on. That does not sound like very much fun. Are we in Newport, Rhode Island now? I don't know. Is it all of a sudden Gilded Age? But maybe it is. But maybe it is. But I think the point of the downtown issue is to show that rebellious, individualistic spirit that has always informed downtown. And downtown, again, is a state of mind. It's not just the village, but it's all of New York. It's that artistic, creative sensibility. It lives on stronger than ever. And I guess maybe who better to talk about it, the idea behind the issue, than Graydon, correct? Graydon is the downtown impresario if everyone existed. Not only is he A, the co-editor of Airmail, B, the co-owner of the Waverly Inn, which is the hottest restaurant downtown, C, the co-founder of Electrogram, an amazing new purveyor of online personalized stationery. But he is also the one and only GC. And we are so happy to have him here to talk about his downtown and why downtown is having a moment yet again. Welcome, Graydon. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice. Thank you so much for having me. Graydon, Airmail was born and bred downtown. Our office is in Greenwich Village. You live in Greenwich Village. 
Why does downtown hold such a place in our minds and your mind? Well, I came to New York 45 years ago and I settled in Greenwich Village because honestly, it was the only place I had ever known about it. And, and I was living and growing up in Canada and Greenwich Village, I could argue that it is the most famous village in the world. So my first apartment was in the village and it was about a block from where I live now. It was a remarkable place that had like 14 foot ceilings and a wall of leaded glass looking out over a garden and it was over the cafe loop. And I paid $220 a month for it. I'm sure it'd be going for $6,000 a month now. I love the village because I love the fact that we have trees, we have side Walks. We have neighborhood shops. There are no big box stores down here. And you can bump into movie stars. You can bump into writers. You can bump into dancers. I eat outside a lot at a, a restaurant called Claudette down here. And watching the parade of like humanity that goes by between old and young and male and female and in between and the different colors of hair and wild clothing and students and professors. Anyway, it just makes you feel good about life living in the village. So in this issue of Airmail, two of our deputy editors, Julia Vitale and Nathan King, came up with a list of the 50 downtown people that we should be thinking about right now. What do you love about that portfolio and how do you think it embodies the spirit of the village? Well, first of all, I do think that the health of big cities, big cities like New York and Paris and London, they depend on a refreshment of young people on a constant basis. And you need the, these young people flowing in constantly. And so I look at this list and I feel completely encouraged about the next generation in the village, but it makes me feel good that it is rejuvenation going on as there always is and always should be. Yeah, cities depend on young people and this is a great sort of advertisement for that influx. And now you live in a very cool building downtown. We don't necessarily want to tell our listeners exactly where to find you, but will you tell us a little bit about what's special about your little corner of the universe down there? Well, I'd raised five children in a house in West Village. And one thing you do not want to have if you live in New York, you don't want to have a roof that you're responsible for because roofs leak. And we didn't need a townhouse anymore. Four of my kids have grown up and they have their own places. So we found an apartment building we've loved forever. We've looked at apartments in here and we finally decided to move here. And it's a, it's a sort of, it's an old fashioned apartment that Irving Penn used to live here, Max Ernst, Maurice Sendak, Alexander Calder. And it's just got a, it sort of was some of the central homes of sort of old Bohemia down in the village. Great. And we've got a great story this week by Jim Walcott about nightlife, the other part of living downtown, the extracurricular parts of life. And he mentioned CBGBs, Mud Club. I'm sure many listeners are eager to know where back in the day did you like to hang out at night? What did you find so vibrant about that moment back then? Well, first of all, we didn't do drugs when I was young because we, A, couldn't afford it. And it just sort of passed us by. We drank a lot and everybody smoked. You smoked everywhere in New York in those days. I went to clubs. I wasn't a club person. I just sort of went as a social anthropologist. I'd been to the mud club with the tunnel and the milk bar and Studio 54. The one I probably felt most comfortable with was Nell's, which was more of a like a large living room and it wasn't like a disco floor or anything like that. And if there were drugs being used, they weren't doing it in front of me. But I was pretty square. I was a nightlife wise. Also, I had like a bunch of children and it's important to be home for them. Every generation, when you talk about just the different people who lived in your building and it reminds you of like the kind of generations and waves that have moved through downtown and everyone sees it in their own way. But if you were giving advice to someone just moving into the village now or downtown about how to get the most out of it and how to find their way through it. 
Well, first of all, if I was young, I wouldn't live in Greenwich Village. I'd live in the East Village because the East Village is much more alive than Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village is now so expensive. It's almost impossible for young people to live here. And I think that get out on the street as much as humanly possible because I used to have a stoop and I loved reading the papers on the stoop in the morning and I'd do it right through like November. And it's the way to meet the neighbors. And there are neighborhoods here. And it just, I think that they're wonderful small restaurants. Walking around the village is just, as you know, it lifts the human spirit. I'm sure you've seen the news. Donald Trump is going to be running again. What do you make of this development? Well, as a Democrat, I'm very happy because I think he'll be an easy target. I think if the Republicans are probably hanging their heads in despair because they think he is an easy target for the Democrats. I know his daughter has distanced herself from his campaign, which will make for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner. And we'll see. It's just he can't be out of the public eye. It's filling some sort of void in his soul. And this is his way of doing that and perhaps warranting off public prosecution. I wish he wouldn't run. I wish he'd just leave the stage and leave it to others, but that's not going to be the case. By the same token, I think he's too old, and I think Joe Biden's too old. They're two of the oldest world leaders, and I think we need younger people. I think people, the American leaders should be between the age of, could be a man or a woman between the age of, say, 45 and 63. That's the sweet spot in terms of energy, knowledge, wisdom, enthusiasm, and sort of contact with the world. Okay, last question. We have to ask you about UK politics. Do you miss Liz Truss already? I was talking to James Fox today and I was saying that I just, I love following British politics because first of all, the stakes are so low. It's like a David Lodge novel in that just all this bitter infighting over something that's like a country that is just shrinking because of Brexit. Liz Truss was just something that Armando Iannucci couldn't imagine, as was Boris Johnson. And I think they're as competent as American politicians, but not as vulgar as like Trump has created the political arena. All right. More to come on this for sure. Very soon. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Graydon, thank you so much for joining us. Anything else you'd like to touch on? No, but thank you for having me and very good to see you both. You too. See you soon. Thanks, Graydon. Bye-bye. He's seen it all, right? He has seen everything. And not only has he seen it, but he has such a unique view on it. And that's why we love him. And that's why the world of readers loves him, too. You know who also has seen it all and also heard it all and also read it all? Jim Walcott. I love this story. He has basically taken us on a guided tour of lost nightlife haunts downtown. Everything from Tunnel to Mud Club to CBGBs. And I was at some of these clubs. Some of them I wasn't. But Jim... For those of you who are regular readers of Airmail, know that he is a columnist for us. He's also the author of several books, including the memoir, Lucking Out, My Life Getting Down and Semi-Dirty in the 70s, as well as Critical Mass, a collection of his essays and reviews. Ashley, I have a feeling you were at some of these clubs too, but let's get Jim on here to tell us everything we need to know. And for those of you who've never been, need to remember. Welcome, Jim. Jim, for this conversation, like, do we need a beer, a Jack and Coke? Like, what is your cocktail of the conversation? Because we need to settle back. And- oh, no, no. I never drank anything other than regular Coke in those days. Okay. Legs McNeil once <laughs> said I was the one sober person at CBGB. No wonder you can remember it so well. Yeah. No, it does help. It does help. And I didn't do any of the other stuff. This is why you're our perfect guide for today. We want to know all about the story behind the story. Ashley, I know you're loaded with questions. Okay, Jim, first of all, 
when you got this assignment, why did you take it on exactly? What about revisiting this period appealed to you? Well, I feel in some ways I've never really left it and the culture hasn't left it because, I mean, I have a huge library of books just about that period and each place has its own little liter. I mean, there are like at least two books about the Mud Club, a huge coffee table book about area, numerous books about CBGB and it's sort of like all the literature is Studio 54 and that was my period in New York. I lived in the East Village. And so in a sense, I don't feel like I've ever, like, it's never left my mind. Let's put it that way. Now, Jim, these clubs don't exist anymore, at least in the way that they once did. But you bring them back to our memory. Why don't we first talk about CBGB? Okay, for those who have not been, CBGB is no longer a thing. There's an art gallery in its place now. But what was CBGB like when it was cool? And why was it so important to the culture, not only of New York, but to the music culture as a whole? The thing about CBGB was it was a totally organic thing. It was originally going to be a kind of country music bluesy club. I mean, that's what the initials stood for, country blues. I mean, it was some bluegrass or something. I mean, it was something absurd like that. And the origin story is is told that it was Tom Verlaine of television who was walking by and said, what walked in there and said, hey, could we play here? Now, I don't know how true it is, but the great thing about it was Hilly Crystal, who owned it, he was willing to shift and he didn't really have like a vision. So he wasn't imposing a vision on the bands that played there. He must have been as surprised as anybody else. The first big sensation there, and I, which is what I wrote about for the Village Voice, was Patti Smith. Back when Patti Smith, I don't think she even had a drummer at that point. And Patti Smith played there and she played on weekends. Television would open for her. And then other bands began to get booked. But it was a slow-growing scene. I mean, today, everybody would be whipping out their cell phones and everyone would know about it within 24 hours. But then bands could really develop. And then it was the Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie. And then it was just a great crummy hangout place because it wasn't a backstage that kept people out. So the musicians mingled with everybody at the bar. Everybody hung out. And nobody who went there who was a celebrity went any better than anybody else. There was no celebrity section roped off. It was years, but it sort of organically grew. And then the other clubs followed suit. So one of the other clubs, Jim, that you mentioned, again, I think you talk about how things were so organic then and just sort of different was just a brief cab right away on White Street was a place you call out called Mud Club, which also had this amazing intersection of not just music, but artists as well. As you mentioned, Basquiat and Herring and other people. So how did that evolve? What were your memories of Mud Club as well? Mud Club was more kind of multimedia. CBGB was really strictly music. It was just the nature of the venue. Mud Club was more, they showed movies, they had art shows, they had an art gallery on a higher floor. It was one of those places that sort of like Danceteri, like Danceteri, it had different floors. So that was more room to mingle and mischief. And they also had couches so people could crash on the couch. And it was much more of like a kind of ongoing art scene. And a lot of the sort of people who were downtown, more downtown celebrities, they felt more comfortable there because with more floors and couches and rooms, they didn't feel all crushed in. So when you see the photographs from the era, you can see David Bowie hanging out. And there were certain people who just felt more comfortable there. And they also 
had, as I mentioned in the piece, they had special nights that were just hilarious. They had a special Mother's Day, a Joan Crawford Mother's Day event. They had the invitations were sent out. And there were other things like that that were just special. It was the Dead Rock Stars funeral party. So they had things like that. I'm wondering, you mentioned Patti Smith and seeing her there. Are there top memories for you when you look back at like things you saw that you knew in the moment they were great and you still look back and like that was a peak moment to be witness to? Some of them are things that are not peak moments, but they're just embedded in my memory, such as seeing Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen staggering out of CBGB's one night, hanging on each other and just everybody kind of making way because they both looked like they were going to fall down. The death of Nancy Spungen and the death of Sid Vicious were just had an incalculable effect in that whole era. So there was that. But a lot of what I remember about CBGB are things like television playing its second set at 12.30 at night and hardly anybody there, but television playing an absolutely phenomenal set or seeing the Ramones for the first time and just laughing hysterically. I mean, they did like 14 songs in 20 minutes and the set would have been even shorter if they hadn't been yelling at each other between breaks. Jim, as I read your story, it reminded me of how much of New York life happened between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m., you know, or whenever the clubs closed. We're an earlier to bed town these days. A lot of our restaurants even close at 9 and 10 o'clock. Do you think something's been lost? Oh, I think something's definitely been lost. I mean, it wasn't just the clubs aren't there, but the all-night diners, the all-night place hangouts and dives because near CBGB's was a place called Phoebe's, and it was also uh, Kiev, and there was a diner near Mud Club where everybody went. And so you would get the mixture of prostitutes who were cooling their heels for like a half hour, bikers, workers in the area who were coming in early, musicians who had just finished their set. It was this whole mixture of people. There's nowhere you would see that now. And in part because the diners aren't there, the cheap food isn't there. It's absurd now when they talk about when people drag out the slogan, the city never sleeps. New York New York is not that city anymore. There may be pockets where things are going on 24 hours, but for the most part, No, it's just not happening now. Jim, if there were one or two songs from that moment that if you hear them, they take you back, what would those one or two songs be? Well, the Talking Heads song that refers to This Ain't No Mug Club or CBGB's. I think of like Patti Smith's cover version of The Velvet Underground's We're Gonna Have a Real Good Time Together, because that was the song that Patti would use to kick off her set back in the day. It's a wonderful story. Jim, I mean, you have this conceit in there like it should be a VR tour, but I really do think not only why everyone should read the story, but I wish everyone could go on a guided tour with Jim Walcott through these various places and in New York City and the downtown of the mine because it's you've done such a great job evoking it and capturing it. Such a wonderful treat to have this story in the issue. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay, that was too much fun. Almost as much fun as Don Hills used to be back in the day. Do you remember Don Hills? We have to talk about Don Hills. Of course I remember Don Hills. And you know what's so fun about Jim's story is you got all the fun, but you didn't come home smelling like cigarette smoke and beer right? Just like you did at Don Hills. That is something only old people like us remember. You used to be able to smoke in bars in New York. I know this is a controversial thing. You would go to Don Hills and for days, maybe weeks afterwards, you'd be smelling like Marlboro's. And that was a whole thing. It was a point of pride and contention. Now, of course, being a hypochondriac, I look back on that with concern. But times were different then. What can I say? I mean, okay, wait, important question. 
80s night or tis was? 80s night, of course. I was tis was, okay. See, we never saw each other. This explains so much about our relationship. I agree with you. Like, I would come home from Don Hills and I'd have to, like, take my coat and hang it on my fire escape for two days. And even then, you just smelled it. Like, your hair smelled, everything smelled. And, like, I didn't even smoke, but it was just that thick haze, blue cloud. Was nothing but nicotine smoke, but that's what it was, right? Hanging over the dance floor. The only question, Michael, is why did they let people smoke indoors in New York for so long? Looking back at that, it was absolutely revolting. I felt so awful for the people who worked in places like that and never got a break from it. I mean, we went for a couple hours every few weeks, but it was such a totally different time. It was so much more hedonistic and so much more, in many ways, free. I mean, that was before the advent of smartphones capturing your every move. So I think people just felt a little bit more compelled to let loose. Anyway, memories. Memories. And much of the music you may have danced to at 80s night and tis was, was also created just around the corner, well, just up the street a little bit, on 8th Street. And it's a story that Chris Black has this week. It's about the recording studio Electric Lady, where everyone from Jimi Hendrix to the Rolling Stones to Patti Smith, David Bowie, all came by to record at the studio. And Chris Black, who is the founder of Done to Death Projects and the co-host of a great podcast called How Long Gone. And Chris is here today to talk about the place that Electric Lady Studios holds, not just in New York City in the downtown scene, but in all of music history. So, Please welcome Chris. Okay, Chris, Electric Lady Studios. First of all, take us back. How did it get started? How did the studio get started or how did I get started being obsessed with it? (laughs) Both. We'll take both. They probably intersect. So let's have them all tie it all up together for us. I mean, no, I'm not. I wouldn't say obsessed. That might be overstating. But no, it was originally Jimi Hendrix's palace for recording because he wanted to open a nightclub. And then some smart people in his life intervened (laughs) and said that he could actually make money instead of lose it. And when he started looking at the numbers, the figures on what he was spending to record constantly in New York, it made sense to kind of make it a studio instead of a nightclub. So he opens it in 68. Tell us some of the other people who have recorded there over the years, the albums that have been created there and how it looms. It's like everyone knows movies studio lots, but no one really knows like recording studios and the art that shapes our world that's been created there. No, no. I mean, I think in the later years, people are familiar with it for a handful of different things, whether it's like Maggie or Bad Bunny or even like most famously probably Frank Ocean. But the history, I mean, it's Patti Smith. It's everyone, basically. And I think that that's kind of the lore is that almost everyone you can think of from current or old has recorded there. But it's also been able to maintain the status in New York City, which is kind of, it stands alone. It's basically at the top, it's just us. I don't know if there's another place that's out like lasted this long and continue to have that level of artists making their music there. I don't know if this is true or not. You might know better than I, but I was just digging around before we came into our little studio here, which we like to call Electric Ashley Studio. But there was a thing on the interweb that the Rolling Stones had recently been recording a new album there but i don't know if that's true but it would not surprise us right no i've heard that too and i mean i think it's like again it's i don't know man it's like there's nowhere else to go on this level where you're like stevie wonder was in here d'angelo was in here acdc was in here like the range is so strong and i think that also if you're in new york for a couple weeks you can lock in there and do it like i talk about in the story you're able to experience new york while you're there you know what i mean you're not 
upstate, you're not in the middle of nowhere, you're able to go out and go to restaurants and go to bars and see people and do things, which I feel like could contribute to the process in a positive way. So you've clearly been there, Chris, right? I mean, what was your first time you went there? And was it like you went and snuck in like a kid sneaking into Ebbets Field or what did you do? (laughs) During the summer, they have parties on the roof there, like get togethers. And I've been fortunate enough to go to a few of those. And I've had a few friends over the years that have worked there on both sides, whether it's behind the boards or in the booth themselves. So I've got a chance to visit. But when I was taking the photos for the story, I think that's probably the most time I'd actually spent in there when it was basically just me walking around. I'm getting to experience it myself. And I think that that kind of, it's funny because that sort of aesthetic is not what I like in my personal life. (laughs) Like I want John Pawson, clean lines, like very modern design. It's like a Chateau Marmont thing. Like you can just feel it in the walls. It's so special. And like, it's got the original murals in the wall. The lighting is just right. Like the candles are in the right place. It's everything is in its right place. And I think that that is something that the attention to detail is really impressive to me, especially at this stage when it's been going on for this long and you could in theory just kind of coast on your name and your kind of your history. Yeah, for sure. I think living just three blocks away from it, I've walked down A Street many times and there's no plaque. There's nothing to sign. It's very discreet. And yet it's all the soundtrack of our lives has been made there over the past 60 or so years now. No, I mean, absolutely. And I think that recording studios in general are just funny places. Like I used to be in the music business. I spent a lot of time in them and they're, if you're not actually making the music, it's quite boring. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're kind of sitting around watching guys do the same thing over and over and over until they get it right and the producer says we can move on but I think like you mentioned at the top there's this handful of these places where even fans of music innocent bystanders their interest is peaked and they want to visit because of the history and I think that Electric Lady kind of defines that for me yeah. It reminded me of if I'm sure many of our listeners watched the Beatles multi-part documentary. I mean, at least like for many people, like you see, like it's this beautiful monotony, like trying to improvise, try to lay down tracks, take it over, go back and on. But it's this slow weaving together of the song and to see it in that world. Yeah. And I think the backdrop for that, like the way studios are assembled, obviously it's like acoustics and gear first and all that stuff. But then there are these aesthetic choices. Some places have rock climbing walls and video game, beer on tap and things to kind of take you out of it and give you something else to occupy if maybe you hit a wall. But I think what's interesting about Electric Lady is that stuff isn't necessary because if you hit a wall, you walk outside and you're in New York and that hopefully alleviates whatever issues you're having or at least is able to take your mind off of it and get you back to work in a better state. So I think maybe that also for me, like not having all the bells and whistles and some of the other things that I've seen in my life and my time in studios also makes it more appealing because they just kind of stuck to the only the necessities, which I think is nice to see. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a music head question. You get to go in there and anything is possible and you get to hear one band, one performer sing one song that was recorded there. What would you choose? Oh, no. Wow. This is heavy. This is really heavy. Hey, man, come on. Honestly, I think I want to do something more current because they do this great series of live at Electric Lady. Like they put out a lot of EPs. I think I'm going to have to go with, so this is controversial, but I'm a big Father John Misty fan. And I just saw him recently in Atlanta and the show was really good. I've never seen him before. And he's like a classic kind of Electric Lady guy. But there's a new song on his album called Buddy's Rendezvous. 
that is kind of like a, his new album has that whole, a little bit of like a bossa nova thing to it, which is usually not my flavor, <laughs> to say the least. But in this case, I think that this song is just so beautiful. And then there's this, ver Lana Del Rey has recorded her own version that's taken on like a cult of her own. I still prefer Father John's version, but a live at Electric Lady version. I think the warmth of the room with his voice and the way he writes songs and just kind of the full or orchestral arrangement, the whole thing. I would love to hear that. I could hear Stevie wonder for the rest of my life, but I think something current feels more right for this choice. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful story, your great insights, and for being here. Oh, hey, my pleasure. I want to say thank you to Mark Ronson for giving me his insight as someone who kind of grew up in the studio. I think it was great to get his voice in there and hear some of his stories. Well, it's a terrific story, and you can read it in this week's issue of Airmail. And Chris, we'll look forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you, guys. Yeah, for sure. Good to see you both. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Talk to you soon. Later. Okay, Michael, one of the things I love about New York is you never know where the night is going to take you. And one night back in 2006, the novelist and memoirist Stephanie Dandler went to a bar on the Lower East Side and ended up seeing an early performance by Lady Gaga. Stephanie's the author of two books, Sweet Bitter, the 2018 novel, and a wonderful memoir called Stray. And she is here to tell us all about that night. Welcome, Stephanie. Okay, Stephanie, you've written the most wonderful story for us this week. You've taken us back to 2006 to the salad days of Lady Gaga, or as we call her, a pre-fame Lady Gaga, who was just an average musician or an above-average musician living a normal life and performing at a bar downtown in New York. Tell us all about pianos and what the scene was like then. Pianos was a two-story music venue and bar and it was in this cluster of bars on Ludlow Orchard in Rivington. And as I say in my piece, a lot of service industry kids, which I was, I was working at Union Square Cafe. We all migrated downtown after hours because there would still be music sets at 11 o'clock at night, at 12 o'clock at night. And you knew that the Lower East Side was a place where the night didn't have to end. And I had a friend, Brendan Sullivan, who was a DJ, and he had a show with these two performers, like a musical review at pianos on Sunday nights. And I think, according to him, he was like trying to enliven a usually dead night Sundays. And the performers were Lady Starlight and Lady Gaga. And I went thinking I was supporting a friend and I unwittingly <laughs> took part in something historical. I have an important question. Was she going by Lady Gaga at that point? She was Lady Gaga. She had the beginnings of a persona. So you were one of the original little monsters then? I like to think so. But as I say in my piece, at the time, it was just another show. Like, I was very excited about her because I love pop music and I felt like I understood the sort of like glam rock aesthetic that she had in those days. But I wasn't like, you guys, I just saw the greatest performer. I did feel that when I saw her a month ago at Dodger Stadium, I thought I am seeing one of the greatest performers of my lifetime, but she was just a scrappy Lower East Side upstart. And do you remember what song she played and what did she look like? Like, take us back into the room. I do not remember the music because I was drunk, but I do remember that there's a sexual energy. She was wearing a sequined bikini and so was her partner, Lady Starlight. There was a burlesque 
aspect to it that was very big in 2006. You're talking about leading up. Do you guys remember the box? Stephanie, who could forget the box? Come on. (laughs) Come on. Do you see the gray hair on me? What are you doing? Come on. But this is leading up to the box. The box hadn't opened yet, but the sort of like sexual showmanship of these kinds of things was definitely in the air. And you couldn't really see her face. She had that like dark, heavy fringe that was very big in this sort of like cobra snake era. If you look back at all the cobra, the bangs, they were so heavy, but they weren't doing anyone a favor. Thank God I never went down that route. But I thought she was wild. The thing that is the same about her in both performances, right? Like pianos in 2006 and Dodger Stadium in 2022 is that she feels like so unpredictable on stage. She feels very like a raw nerve and her voice really reflects that. It can go in any direction. And she's fun. She was fun, fun, fun. Both times. Oh, but the room in pianos is what you asked about. Pianos just was dark and sticky and smelled like beer and body odor, like most bars late at night. Most bar, most bars are most bachelor pads. Oh, yeah. That's another dark memory from my early 20s. <laughs> Stephanie, one of the things I love about your story is so many of us living in New York around that time had moments like that. I remember seeing the Strokes in one of their first concerts and it changes your life. And I think that's part of the magic of New York is that you think you're going to support a friend's gig and it turns out that you're witnessing music history in action. I think you've really captured what makes New York so special and so unique in terms of other metropolises around the world. There's no scene quite like New York City. Never has been, never will be. Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. It's very rare. And I think living in LA now, and it's not just being in a different stage of my life, it's the ease of access to great art, whether that's music, whether that's painting, whether that's food in New York. Like, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a name. I didn't have anything. I could just stumble into a bar and be a part of, feel like I was at the center of the universe. And that's only New York. We don't have that here in Los Angeles. Stephanie, thank you so much, not only for your great story, but for your fabulous books that Michael and I adore. And you're working on a new novel, right? And a new screenplay. Can you tell us anything about that? What can I tell you? The novel is set in 1990s Los Angeles against the Menendez trial, which was a famous trial. If you grew up here, two boys killed their parents. So it has kind of a true crime element. And all my Google searches are about sexual abuse. So it's been really really light. We can imagine. We look forward to reading that as well. Stephanie Danlair, thank you again. She's the author of Stray, a memoir, and the 2018 novel Sweet Bitter, both essential reads, as well as her wonderful story about Lady Gaga before she was Gaga. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Have a good day. Uh, take me back to 2006, Michael. I loved a pianos moment. It was great to hear talking about it. It's funny. I was listening to it. I was reminded there was this to go really far back in terms of downtown and the things you can discover that a week or so ago, there was a the first recordings made of a young singer who's often been compared to Gaga, Barbara Streisand, when she appeared at a small club in the village when she was first discovered by a New York Times critic and then exploded into fame. But these recordings that were made of her have finally, with her permission, come to light. And I thought like, now I'm longing for recordings of Gaga back then in that club. And I'm sure somewhere they exist. And maybe in a few decades, she will remaster them, let them come out. But it's just the layers, as you say, of going to discover something. And then you realize later you're witnessing history. And that's one of the great electric joys of the downtown world in New York, right? As Leonard Cohen sang so memorably, those were the reasons that was New York. I was running for the money in the flesh. Ah, the money in the flesh. Michael, before we go out into that good weekend, do you have 
anything at all you can recommend. I do. If you are a fan of Ray Fiennes and who's not, you can currently see him in New York on stage in a production of a new play called Straight Line Crazy, where he plays Robert Moses of all people. But if you can't get tickets to that, you can see him starring in a dark and fun new film called The Menu, in which he plays an egomaniacal world-class celebrity chef who invites guests, including Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt, to a very exclusive dinner at his remote restaurant. It's a dinner which grows increasingly strange and dark. Now, if you're a fan of Succession, this movie will maybe fill some of that void as you wait for the next season because it's directed by Mark Mild, who has directed many of the episodes of that show. And many of the themes from Succession, class and money and entitlement and the corruption of the soul, are all explored here in a very darkly humorous way. It's the perfect post-Thanksgiving movie. It's called The Menu, and it's in theaters now. And you, Ashley? I'm going to recommend a movie that some of our listeners might roll their eyes about. But as I was reading the downtown issue, I could not help but think of, to me, the movie that introduced New York when I was a teenager, which is... Ooh, I want to hear this. Guess what it was. The movie that introduced you to New York as a teenager? Yeah. Annie Hall. Well, in fact, yes, but I don't know if I can recommend that anymore. Too controversial of it? We're not getting into controversy here, Michael. This is the recommended section of the podcast. Okay. okay. Annie Hall was one, but in, the other was Larry Clark's 1995 film, Kids. It was written by Harmony Corinne, and it is all about teenage sex and escapades, and it was fascinating. It stars a young Chloe Sevigny and a lot of other great actors. But I think if you really want to get an idea of what New York or segments of New York or a heightened version of New York was like in the 1990s, it's really an incredible movie. When it came out, initially it was rated NC-17, which of course only served to heighten the intrigue around it. But I watched it again recently and it really holds up and also just takes you back to that time and shows you how long ago 1995 actually was. So Kids, directed by Larry Clark and written by Harmony Corinne. Kids, watch Kids. Did you see Kids? I'm sure you saw Kids when it came out. I have a confession. I was too scared to watch Kids and I haven't watched it since. Actually, I could have guessed that. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> all right. On that note, we wish you all a wonderful downtowny weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us. Just remember, it ain't no mud club or CBGBs, and we ain't fooling around. <laughs>